Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, hello, Father. How you doing? I could be better. Are you excited? This is the beginning of season two. Oh, great. It's about time. I thought <laughs> season two nearly left us. Nearly left us? Didn't even begin yet. Well, good. I'm happy we're starting it again. Welcome to Spies and Lies, an espionage podcast co-hosted by me, Omri Rose, who spent his childhood living undercover thanks to his dear old dad and co-host, Jason, a retired former spymaster of one of the top intelligence agencies in the world. Without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Farewell, Moscow. Hello, Paris. Double Agent Vetrov. You Interesting. Like, you, you like the title? Uh, yes, it's a very... Actually quite surprising how much was packed into this um, episode. Well, let's dive in. Let's dive in. February 1982, Moscow. Double agent Vladimir Vetrov, codenamed Farewell, pops open a bottle of champagne in his car and drinks with his mistress, Ludmila, a KGB office secretary. Suddenly, another KGB officer who happened to be passing notices them and approaches Vetrov's car to say hello. Vetrov jumps in fright, panicking and misreading the situation, fearing the KGB officer has come to arrest him as he produces a knife and stabs the KGB officer. Vetrov's mistress, shocked, leaps out of the car and tries to escape, running, but Vetrov chases her down, stabbing her as well before returning to the car and driving off, his senses a blur. Sometime later, Vetrov returns to the scene for unknown reasons, finding the KGB and police gathered, and his mistress Ludmila still alive, who points out Vetrov to the police, leading to his immediate arrest for murder. Bad as it seemed for Vetrov, if they knew the full truth, though, it could only get worse. Dun, dun, dun. A dramatic scene unfolds. Yes, it's a very dramatic scene. Things definitely are uh, very interesting for Vetrov. Let's put it that he way. He miscalculated a lot of things in the end. Miscalculated a lot, but also proved very, very capable in other things. Let us hear what you're talking about. As we do, before we delve into the juicy details, let's give a little background of what's going on here. So we are dealing with a Cold War espionage case, as we have done in the past. A little refresher on the Cold War. The Cold War is essentially a conflict between East and West. The USSR, the Soviet Union versus the Western Alliance. 
Now, in the 1930s, relations between the West and the USSR were rocky, but an alliance in World War II changed the perspective of the USSR in many democratic nations skeptical of ideological differences. Common enemies, of course, made friends, and propaganda built support around this idea, which also gave fertile ground for communist sympathizers to be excellent assets for the KGB. While also a little bit of the other way around, some Western ideas filtering in to the Soviet Union. U.S. foreign intelligence was extremely basic and in an infancy in the 1940s. President Roosevelt actually created the Office of Strategic Services, the predecessor to the CIA. No American spy network existed in the USSR in the 1940s, or at least none that was known because no one was ever caught. On the other hand, the USSR had a vast and highly organized network across the world, numbers increasing after becoming allies with the West. With friends like these, of course. Who needs enemies, right, Dad? Now, after World War II and victory over the Nazi regime, as well as Japan, the Cold War truly began in earnest. The Western Bloc, the United States and its allies, versus the Eastern Bloc, the Soviet Union and its allies. Ostensibly, this was an ideological war between communism and democracy. But it was also about power, control, territory, and resources, of course. To a certain extent, we can see this conflict still playing out today in situations like Ukraine and Russia. Would you agree? I agree. In fact, we just recently had some Russian spies uncovered in London. Is that right? They always get uncovered in London because <laughs> they're always doing things they shouldn't be doing there. And specifically in London. And not only in London, in other parts of England. Anyway, let's get into who this Vetrov guy was, unless you'd like to add anything about the Cold War and what's going on today. It was a very interesting and very uh, vulnerable times that miscalculations and misunderstandings could easily have brought another world war or nuclear war, as you know, nearly happened. And why it's called the Cold War is, of course, because there was no actual direct conflict between the U.S. and Russia, specifically as in two wars fighting. It was a Cold War. Wars fought secretly in back alleys and in offices and also in proxy wars, such as in Afghanistan when Russia invades and the United States secretly supporting you know, resistance against the, the Soviets and, and things like that. Yes, we can continue. <laughs> Basically, everyone in the world had to pick a side, more or less. Correct. Except That's very for, important. Except for Switzerland, of course, which naturally always decided to be uh, no, no, up on they, were, they were neutral towards the West side. Well, neutral towards the West, but still accepted Russian money and, and well, such. Russian money. Everybody accepts Russian money. <laughs> this is true, especially spies. Yes, you need someone where everybody can meet. <laughs> right. So, who is Vladimir Vetrov? Well, he was born on October 10th in 1931 or 1932. It's a little bit unclear based on my uh, research. He was born Vladimir Ipolitovich Vetrov, and he became a high-ranking KGB official in Department T, which was standing for technology, essentially. Obviously a Russian word, but basically it was focused on technology. Now, he defected to the French intelligence in 1980 and provided vital information of Department T's successes and the ways that they were stealing Western science and tech. Wait, I, I won't say the word defected. Defection means someone actually crosses the line from the point of view physically. Cooperated would be the right word. He was a double agent, that's for sure. Uh, okay, not necessarily a double agent. Okay, he was an agent. <laughs> he was... Still double agent, well, double agent means, in this case, that both sides knows as an agent, or one side knows as an agent. In this case, 
Well, he was still side. working for the Soviets, yes. but he was providing information to the French. Right. So a double agent. Let's continue and we'll talk about the terminology. The later. terminology. Okay. I'm not going to tell you what your profession is. The information received from Vetrov became known as the Farewell Dossier. Why did it become known as the Farewell Dossier? Because his codename was Farewell, which we'll get into a little bit later. The Fairway dossier was profound, and it influenced the outcome of the entire Cold War, setting the USSR back many years and costing vast amounts of resources and manpower damage to their operations. U.S. President Ronald Reagan even called him the spy of the century. Would you agree with that assessment? From his point of view, it came in his century. So from his point of view, it was important because it made him be able to do the, and act and respond to things that others couldn't have done because he had information that others didn't have. And that we'll find out what exactly information we're talking about. We'll find out in a moment. <laughs> but you wouldn't call him the spy of the century. One of the spies of a century. I think if you're looking at his results of what he did and the, and the information he brought in, he you could say he was one of the spies of the century. I'm, I'm almost certain you're not a particular fan of his methodology or personality, but you can't argue with his results. Yes, but I, I'm. it was more like a one-man show more than being run as an agent. And also, I think you could attribute a lot of his success maybe to negligence and luck in some ways. You need luck in any profession. That is very true. But as usual, we're getting ahead of ourselves. Yes, we are. So, Vetrov was born poor, and his family was given a home in a Moscow apartment to live in with several other families. This was all part of Stalin's regime to give opportunities and empower the working class, what was called the proletarian class. He was a great athlete in his youth and was even the junior sprint champion in the USSR, which if you look at pictures of him later in life, is a little surprising. It was a bit well, he was running to the, to the bottle. He was a very good athlete. He that. was great at running to the bottle later in life. That is definitely true. While he was an athlete, he met another young athlete, Svetlana, the daughter of an admiral who he would later marry. He was also a good student, well-educated, and got a degree in electronic engineering after five and a half years of study. After graduation, he worked in a calculating machine factory, writing later, looking back, There were fools who got good jobs because they knew the right people. That shocked me. But, well, at the time, I believed in communism. But soon, opportunity struck. The KGB launched a recruitment drive, and Vetrov applied. I found the idea of working in intelligence exciting. Going to capitalist countries, the home of the devil. We all dreamed of that. And the KGB were the elite. Vetrov was accepted to the KGB. His background of being from the proletarian class and having an interest and expertise in electronics being a big asset for him. He studied for years in KGB schools, learning English, French, and of course, espionage. What kind of things might he have learned? things he didn't use afterwards <laughs> and some things that he did yes like drinking and driving is not the best thing to do this is true this is that's true. what gets you into trouble Always. drinking drinking and driving well yes on numerous accounts finally in 1962 he began work as the chief engineer at the state committee for electronic technologies foreign relations department he was in that job for three years and then everything changed once again in 1965, a KGB defection had compromised many KGB agents across their network, forcing them to be recalled, which gave Vetrov an opportunity and an opening. 
tan 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 tan. What do you mean by that? What do I mean by tan 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 tan? Yes, why did you say that? Uh, because this is when he goes to Paris. Ah, okay, Gay Paris, all right. Yes, he goes to Paris. He is posted abroad, what he dreamt of, and it changes everything for him, It does, it? it does. That's what happens. Paris is a lovely place. When you come from a poor background and you're thrown into a luxurious place like Paris, things happen. What did happen, Henri? In 1965, he was posted to Paris as a Line X officer in Department T, devoted to acquiring Western tech. For five years, he developed relations with French industrialists and scientists. He had a gift for recruiting, meeting in bars and back rooms, and he was very sociable and, of course, spoke French very well. He had a great grasp of languages, it seems. He became friends of a man named Jacques Prévost, an engineer working with Thompson CSF, which specialized in aerospace and defense sectors. A very good friend to have if you were trying to steal secrets. Vetrov exchanged cash for information or parts of machinery that was sent back to the Soviet Union. Essentially, we're talking about technological espionage. Linex and Department T was focused on acquiring tech and intel and sending it back to the Soviet Union. They wanted technology. Why? A KGB agent was quoted as saying, It's cheaper to pay 100000 to get tech worth $5 million. More profitable than gambling. And with those numbers, I'm inclined to agree. Espionage in that point of view is, is very profitable for, this, for the country that you're doing it for. Because you can really make a difference. Saves a lot of research, saves a lot of time. Wasting time on um, wrong experiments, getting to see the right equipment, learning from other people's mistakes. It's really allows you a lot of things that you can't do usually by yourself. Of course, not only Russia did it as well, the Chinese afterwards did it, other countries do it. Well, Nearly every country, if they have a chance to, they will steal someone else's technology. And then, of course, it's not only countries, it's as well companies. So it's not, it doesn't end there. Everybody understands that by getting something that someone else has worked on or researched on will save you time and energy and money. And why not have a hand on it? So when you're a country like Russia, they have a huge organization. That's their job is to find out what the other side is doing is very important. And as we'll see, the information that they received was unbelievable. The amount, the scope, the quality, immense what they were able to, to get. Now, you touched on a very interesting point, which is the relevance of, of it still happening and, and, you know, different companies doing it and everyone doing it essentially. And especially in the 21st century, we have a big issue with this still in the academic institutions particularly. Care to comment on that? It's not an academically. If, if you look at all the, what's hacking all about, what's everything, what, what is, is getting information, is getting intelligence from the other side that helps you understand not only better what he does, but what he's developing, what he's doing. And you're able to then to, technological-wise, to allow yourself to progress or close gaps that otherwise would have taken you a long time, a lot of years. You mentioned, course, a, yeah. you mentioned a particular country with a, the letter C, if I remember correctly. Want to comment on something about their doing? Well, it was always known that the Chinese were very interested in other people's technology, and especially in American and others, and making a habit of picking up as much as they can on the way. And uh, it was, it's a state-sponsored, state you would say, industry in some ways. It's legitimate. 
it's not right, but it's legitimate. I mean, if someone has it, it's, it goes back to the old days. Someone has something, you don't, you want to try and have it. If he is able to do it, you want to have the same ability like he has. The question is, what, what, how do you protect against it or how much resources you're putting in to doing it? In the Russians' case, they had a whole organization that its job was just to try and get technology, whatever it could be, from all the leading companies in the West that they thought could be relevant for anything they were developing. It just made it quicker and more efficient for them to do it. The question is, did they do anything with what the information they received? Were they able actually to understand it or do something with it? To capitalize sometimes, on it. Sometimes they did, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes not enough. But the fact that they were able to build up capabilities, as you said, he ran around in, in Paris or in France meeting people that he shouldn't have been meeting. He shouldn't have been speaking to them. I mean, this uh, gentleman you mentioned... From, from a French Thompson, point of view. Yes, if you look at it from the, for the, for the Thompson Company. Of course, we will hear more about it later. But this is someone, as a French company, you wouldn't want him to have a relationship with the Russians. Just to be clear, of course, he was not posted with a sign that says, I'm working for Soviet intelligence. He was no, undercover. But, yes, but he was Russian. He's not, yes. he's not undercover. He, he wasn't working as a private individual selling flowers in a flower shop. He was part of the Russian mission in Paris. As we and recall with Gordievsky's episode, yes. at some point of like 60% of the embassy of cultural attache yes. people were really... Of course, that's what their job is. Yes. So continue and we will we'll discuss more about I'll that. just touch on one particular tidbit that I, I liked, that there was one particular visit that the Americans conducted for the Russians at a, a metal plant. They were allowing them to visit and see different things. And in order to obtain samples from the plant, they designed these special shoes for the Russians who were visiting the plant that had metal plates that were able, magnetized metal plates that picked up samples on the floor of the plant to bring back so that they could analyze what kind of resources and materials they were using. So all sorts of stuff like this, you know, magnetic boots, <laughs> very interesting things. Uh, yes, I know. All sorts of methods have been used to pick up all sorts of information around the world. You but see, now we go back to Paris. All right. Or did you want to say something else? I decided not to. <laughs> so we go back to Paris. Doubt began to spread in Vetrov's mind. The poorest person in Paris had better standards of living than the average Moscow resident, who themselves lived better than most Soviet citizens. Also, the tech and info he was bringing back wasn't helping the average citizen but was helping the Soviet war machine instead. Vetrov was also widely read and enjoyed the decadence of the West, especially its alcohol. He liked the high life, and Svetlana, his wife, shared his cultural interests. They bought goods, stereos, washing machines, hair dryers, whiskey, lots of whiskey, bringing it back to the Soviet Union for friends and for profit. And they weren't the only ones, this was a common practice. But they didn't bring it for the party heads. At this time, the DST the French internal intelligence became aware of Vetrov and had him watched. In fact, Jacques Prévost, Vetrov's friend, was actually a DST informant. Well, that's important. It's very important that he was. As we'll come to see. Now, Vetrov, if you haven't picked this up quite yet, had one particular vice. Alcohol. He was a drinker. Now, in the summer of 1970, after five years of living in Paris... Vetrov got extremely drunk and crashed his car in the middle of the night. This was a diplomatic car from the embassy, and he knew 
this would be trouble if the KGB discovered this. Not only because he had damaged their property and all this kind of stuff, but also drinking and this, it compromises you. It's not a good look. Exactly. Especially when you need to go back home and you have to get a job. So? So what did you do? What did he do? He called his buddy Prevost for help. Now, Prevost had the car repaired within 48 hours and paid for it himself. After speaking with the DST to arrange it all, of course. Vetrov was in his debt, without knowing that Prevost worked for the DST. Or perhaps he may have had some suspicions, and this was a long game. That we don't particularly know. I don't think so. Some stories even go so far as to say that the crash was set up by the DST. They wouldn't have made sense because they only approached him many, many years afterwards, and he didn't even appro- they didn't even approach him. So I don't, I don't buy that. Unless they're playing the long, long, no, long they don't, game. No, they don't play that long. If you look at the years, if you continue with your story, you'll see it doesn't meet. Nonetheless, Prevost was an informant for the DST and consulted with them. And they decided to make no demands of Vetrov after the crash, just telling him that he had a friend available to help at any moment. A very long, long, long game indeed, then. How long? Long. <laughs> That's why I'm worried about it. Alas, au revoir Paris. In 1970, Vetrov was recalled from Paris and returned to Moscow, possibly because they felt he wasn't attending enough Communist Party meetings. No, it's about five years. I don't keep them longer than that. They become too used to the West and it's not good. That too. But also, this is a trend that we will come to see, that he did start becoming sloppy, let's call Correct. it. Attending less meetings. Of course, there was the drinking. They might not have known about the car crash, but they probably were aware that he was enjoying the high life in Paris. Of course, Vetrov didn't want to leave, and he complained to Prevost. He wished he could stay. He loved France, but of course he couldn't stay against orders. He would become a target, he would be banished, or worse. Vetrov was actually supposed to be nominated for KGB office president in Marseille, but his visa wasn't granted by the French foreign ministry, possibly due to DST negligence. And maybe things got mixed up because, of course, you have the guy in your pocket. Maybe you want to keep him close. What do you think? Another mistake of the, they, they made. The DST. I mean, I would have wanted to keep him close, right? If you, you, would have, the you would have made an approach to him at some point and they didn't. They left it open. I would thought the DST would have ensured that they, he got his visa granted so that you could keep him in Paris yes, close. among other things, yeah. yes. Alas, but he wasn't recruited then. He was nothing. He, he, no. he owed, they didn't know where it would go. But they didn't still, know where it would go. But it was the beginning. It was the beginning. And the DST, as we said, is internal intelligence, That not was the foreign. problem. That was the biggest problem they had. That they're internal intelligence, not foreign intelligence? Yes. It wasn't something they were used to deal with. And they, I have a feeling they didn't even share the information with others. Especially when the guy left to, to Moscow. I don't think they shared that information with the foreign intelligence as You'll continue and we'll talk about it later. Because they paid a, pri- a big price for that. Yeah. Returning to Moscow, Vetrov wrote, When you returned from the West, they assumed you were infected, so they put you under observation in a little bureaucratic job, a sort of detox. Frustrated, Vetrov tried to get in touch with Prevost, and he found out that Prevost would be in Moscow through his office. Vetrov drove to Prevost's hotel and at the lobby called his room telling him to meet downstairs. Now, when Prevost reached the lobby, he saw Vetrov, a tall man. But Vetrov didn't say a word, heading outside into his car. Prevost followed, and inside the car, Vetrov revealed that he's a lieutenant for the KGB, asking, Still want to be my friend? Prevost said yes. But in French, so, oui. 
Together, they headed to Vetrov's apartment and dined with Svetlana. Prevol particularly impressed by Vetrov's vodka fountain, containing up to two liters on tap. I had never even heard of a vodka fountain, so this is particularly impressive to me as well. Well, some of it's stole from the West, probably. Well, I don't know. A vodka fountain? Seems like they might have that in... You think so? Maybe. I think so, too. <laughs> probably. Vetrov telling Prevol, I haven't forgotten what you did for me. Someday I'll repay you. Vetrov and Prevost would go on to regularly meet in Moscow every time he arrived, every time Prevost was in town. More opportunities? More long game? Or something else? You would think that if the French wanted to make something, they would have made an approach there or would have introduced someone who knows how to run agents in Russia because it's very dangerous. You have here a French person who is not an intelligence officer, who is an engineer, basically, works for Thompson, coming into Russia, probably trying to sell or do some business, and he might be compromised. There was no reason why the Russians won't try and approach him and try and do something with him. I want to ask you something else, though. What about the KGB? Wouldn't they be suspicious, maybe, that here's their guy, Vetrov, meeting with this Prevost character, a Frenchman, after he was stationed in France? Would they be watching him for any reason? What, what was going on? I mean, he made this whole show in the hotel of trying to be sneaky. What... What do you think? Well, there's two things here. One, you have to look at it from the Russian point of view and one from the French point of well, view. Well, I want to ask about the Russian point of view now. No, the Russian point of, the French. No, no, the Russian point of view is you have someone who should be an in interest to them. Now, he was not tasked to make contact with him, unless he was. Then he could have said to his superiors, I'm meeting this guy because I'm trying to get information from him. Therefore, he's my guy. No one else should touch him. That makes sense to me. On the other hand... It wasn't his job to do that because he's not going to run him afterwards. So if someone's going to meet him, they would want to have someone who's a case officer. Now, Vetrov was not specifically a case officer. Okay, he was collecting information, but in a, in a, it's a different. It's one thing running an agent, one thing getting information the way he was doing it in some ways. But from the French point of view, he's open to a situation where if he wouldn't have been working with the French, he would have been compromised. Now, if the Russians think that he's working for the French, they wouldn't want Vetrov to be with him. So I would say it looks like both sides did not understand what they had in mind, hand. One, the Russians didn't monitor him, not Vetrov or not the, the French. And the French were not involved in running him at this stage, so there was not registered in any way that he was running him. Now, later on, there's a very interesting saying that Vetrov said, that is, I don't want to work with the foreign intelligence, the foreign French intelligence. Why? Because it's full of moles. It's compromised. I've been compromised. So what is he saying here? He's saying, one, I know we have moles who will tell the Russians if we have, they have agents. That means that the Russians relied... On their French moles? On their French moles, that if Vetrov was being run by the French, they would know about it. And as they were not told that, or they didn't have information on that, maybe they were not worried about it. Mm -hmm. The other hand, this information came up, maybe we're jumping guns, but he said that, and then what did this, the, the, the local, the French security service, if someone tells you that, a Russian tells you, no, I can't trust them because they have a lot of moles, the first thing we'll go, we'll go and find out, okay, let's go to the Russian, to the, to the French and tell, listen guys, we have an agent who's telling us that there's, moles. there's moles, and they're compromised. So, not as clear situation what happened there. What is clear to me, at least what I see, that 
both sides, and as well as we saw from the outcome in the end, the Russians had no idea what was going on, and the French, at this stage, did not run him as an agent. So it was like under the, under the radar. But no information was passed, and no money was passed, as we'll see later. It's and that's very, a different scenario. It's a very long, slow, drawn-out thing. It's different. It's, yeah. it's not a normal scenario of, of running an agent, because he, if you look, what year we're talking about? At this point, we're in 1970. 1970. When was he actually, he say, gave information? Ten years later. So he po- was posted to Paris in 1965. Yes. In 1970, he was recalled. Yes. And he starts giving information in 1981. Exactly. So for 10 years, it took him, Vetrov. 16. Well, 10 years since they met in Moscow. Or yeah. So he got back. Yeah. That's too of a long game if you're as an organization. People who recruited you, remember, you're even, not even in the service anymore. You've retired already. Retired. <laughs> you don't wait that long. No, no organization can wait that long. No one has patience for the long game. Not this amount. So I don't see it as a long game. That's why I said I don't think it's a long game. It was just, these things just happened. I think... None of them, especially in the French, did not think at that stage that they can get information from him that's worth it. Or they didn't even ask him to get anything. Well, we'll also see that people didn't really think the technology theft was that big of an issue until he revealed the extent and scope that was happening. So also they may have thought there's not really much there, as you were saying. If you continue with the story, it'll be interesting to see why there's 70 to 80. I I want to, but I just want to touch on one more point here on this particular section, is that he tells Prevost that he's a lieutenant for the KGB, right? Series of events. Prevost is an informant for the DST. You would think that even though they knew, he would say, okay, he's confirmed it, this and that, whatever. Maybe we need to share this information. We have an in. Because he didn't as far as we know necessarily, share that there's moles with the French intelligence, foreign intelligence. Would he, would, why wouldn't they share that with the French foreign intelligence then? Unless you would have said. Rivalry between organizations and not giving up your assets. And you have to remember, this is not an agent. Uh, he's a, he but wouldn't Privil tell them? I suppose no, he already knew. No, only his handlers should have told him. Right. Is, is not an agent. He doesn't work for the organization. He's an engineer. Right. Later on, someone else is introduced. And we'll get to it. And right. then, okay. then, we'll, then we'll talk about okay. the, the tall guy. We have, we have another uh, country yeah. to go to first. Yeah. Before that, even. Yes. In 1974, after four years of being stationed in Moscow and being frustrated there, Vetrov was now a lieutenant colonel and he was posted to Montreal, which is French speaking, hence his Makes sense. logic to, to do that, and also English speaking, so he had both of those covered, pretending to be the top engineer at a Soviet trade mission. So there's his cover story. Of course, he's still for the, you know, Department T and all that. However, nine months later, he's recalled. Why? Well, apparently, Vetrov's superior did not get along with him. He was constantly complaining that Vetrov was always drunk, drinking in the morning, drunk driving, getting into accidents, which his superior had to pay for. Also, Vetrov missed many party meetings. So again, this recurring theme that we've been addressing. Now, okay, as an organization... Here's this guy. Now you have proof. He's missing meetings. He's drunk driving. Okay, you're recalling him. But aren't you going to do more? Are suspicions raised or something? What do you think as an organization well, from your perspective? First of all, yes. But, but the other hand, no. Because he's not done anything. Right. Not a crime to drink. No, it's a crime he, to drink. Even if you question him, he's not given any information to anyone. Mm-hmm. He's not betrayed anyone. 
He's not done anything wrong at this stage. Nothing. And he's provided information. And he does so his far. work. And right. he's probably very good at what he does yeah. in drinking. That too. But he has not betrayed his and country at this stage. Maybe, unfortunately, to be a little stereotypical here, but maybe also the drinking problem is not something so abnormal. But there's so many of them that, are, that drink and maybe drive in the wrong way, but that's not the issue. The issue is that there's no indication to show that he is on the payroll, that he's giving information or is doing anything wrong. Because mm -hmm. if you look at it as well later, he didn't, doesn't get money. Right. However, all that said, Vetrov was becoming more and more disillusioned with the communist system. On his return to Moscow, he wrote, Rather than my home country, I feel I am returning to prison, never to leave again. He believed that the backward Soviet thinking was causing the need for them to steal the tech from the West. An absurdity, an indignity for the country. How, if they were so superior, did they need to steal this technology from the inferior nations? It was all backwards in his head. Additionally, he was frustrated with his superiors who subjected him to examination on his return, possibly due to an attempt by the Canadian intelligence to recruit him in 1975. Did this lead to his recall? Anyone who comes from Russia who works for the government and is, uh, has vulnerabilities, you'll try and see if you can use them. But the Canadians, again, it was more the internal service, not, not the external service at this stage. They didn't do anything there to make it. He was not. A, he he didn't work for them, as we know. So it was there and it passed. Right. And you just don't recall someone if someone approaches you, because you get approached all the time. End result: Vetrov was ineligible for foreign assignment after this, and he was recalled. He was assigned to be the assistant to the head of the scientific and technological espionage department. Vetrov was now a high-ranking official with immediate access to Department T information stolen from the West. Military industrial secrets, special data on nuclear research, computer tech, space and missile programs, and more and more. One of his new tasks was to examine and analyze daily the information reports and data sent in from agents and sources worldwide. Great position to be in. Wonderful position to be in. So clearly, they didn't mistrust him. He was still assigned an important role, but just not a foreign role. It's a very important position to be in because you actually see everything that comes in. If they didn't trust him, they wouldn't put him in that position. So why did they recall him? Personal issues. It's always, everything is personal. He didn't get along with someone. The guy said, you know, I don't like him. Send him back. Send him back. Nonetheless, Vetrov was depressed. And it is then that he begins his affair with Ludmila, a KGB office secretary. This was not his first affair, but his life was shaken when he discovered that his wife Svetlana was also having an affair. He felt in a dead end. And he even, in his frustration, wrote a report on how to improve the department that he was working in, but he was ignored. And he was passed over for promotion by better connected and less talented people. He felt underappreciated. And when he felt that, he drank more. Then, in April of 1981, one of the most dramatic turns in his life occurred. Vetrov made a decision, writing a letter to his old friend Prevost, which he gives to a relative traveling to Hungary to mail from there. In the letter, he writes, For me, this is a question of life and death. Clever to give the letter to a relative, to mail it from Hungary. You know, we're seeing some of the espionage technique there, right? I would say he trusts someone that maybe he shouldn't have trusted, but that's a different issue. <laughs> Not long after, however, Vetrov and Prevost meet in Moscow. Vetrov handing Prevost papers, telling him to give them to his employers. They were secret files. Now, Vetrov asked for no payment or promise of rescue to the West. 
writing, this totalitarian order crushes individuals and promotes discord between people. He was in it for the ideology. Very important. And the best way to keep your cover. And that's why there was mismanagement in the running of him. Let's talk about it later. <laughs> well, I mean, if suddenly uh, someone gets an influx of a bunch of money that's unaccounted for, it's a lot easier to question where did that come from, right? Yes, but uh, let's continue because uh, it's, uh, there's more into it. Now, the DST were immediately impressed with the papers he had handed Prévost. But the internal agency was ill-equipped to run an agent. Correct. And Vetrov didn't trust the French Foreign Service due to moles, as we said. And so, Vetrov became an agent for the DST, codenamed Farewell by the French. An English word, so that the KGB would assume that he worked for the CIA if he was discovered, or that the operation was already finished. What do you think of that excuse? Well, if you're caught, and, and well, if you look at it, who's going to know the name? Only someone who reads information on the other side and compromised. So it will, it, it will keep him away from the French. That means that if the, the Russians now will look for someone who is working with the Americans, he will not come up because he's working with the French. And they wouldn't think that the French will give him a American, an English code. So it's to protect another layer of protection, you could say. I mean, I, I think it makes sense. I mean, obviously, if they yeah. codenamed him Au revoir, you know, you'd say, uh, yes. oh, well, he's probably not working for the Americans. You know? Well, remember, who would know about it? Moles working for the Russians will say well, there's an agent with a French code, because you see the code, they'll start looking who are French people who are working and coming in and mm -hmm. they'll start looking. So it's a way to protect themselves from it. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. To prove his worth at the start, Vetrov met with his DST handler three times in four days to give Department T documents, proving the scope and scale of operations. He would pass the information to a man working as an engineer for Thompson CSF, Prevost's friend, who ran the office in Moscow. His name, Xavier Amey. Amey lived in Moscow since 1979, and he would copy the documents in his office and then pass the info and reports to the French military attaché in Moscow, who could smuggle them out with his diplomatic bag. 
he himself didn't know what the reports were, as they were all in Russian. Eventually, he learned, and afterwards, he never let the documents out of his sight before transferring them. He slept with them under his pillow, or had them with him at all times. Now, where is the safest place to keep documents? On yourself at all times, or somewhere hidden? What's your thoughts? Well, neither, but that's not the point. <laughs> the thing is, why, why, would he, why did he have to make copies of them? He wanted them back. The assumption is, yes, that Vetrov needed the originals back to return them to where they were. There was no way to, to copy or take a photo of them at this stage. At, at this stage, stage no. Later, so it was yes. very amateurish. Not only very amateurish, I mean, DST hires some engineer at Thompson CSF who has no idea what's going on. And to a French attache who has nothing to do, not supposed to be dealing with espionage. And also three times in four days, that's super Okay, that, that can happen no? because it happens. Because before you, there was a weekend and before they even managed to know what's going on, the headquarters were three meetings. I can, that can happen. But it shouldn't happen. Let's continue and see what happens now. So Ame also was helped by his wife, and yes, she eventually came to know. And yeah. when he would go to the bathroom, she'd sit on the documents, all this kind of silly little like husband yes. and wife shtick <laughs> going on there. But eventually, Ame was replaced by a professional at the French consul, Patrick Ferrand, who was extremely tall, six foot five, and very noticeable. Now, you might think this is an odd choice for someone doing covert work. But the thought was, no one ever suspect that you would send a giant for a secret meeting. And in fact, the thought proved valid. Ferran seemed to have never been followed. And he worked in the foreign intelligence? No. What we understand or assume, he is probably still from the internal service. Most likely, yes. Yes, not the external service. Now, Vetrov, in spite of the fact that Ferran was never followed, still suggested that it would be safer to pass documents to Ferran's wife while she was shopping as wives weren't usually followed or assumed to be suspect. or Well, he assumed correctly that if someone works for the intelligence in the embassy in Moscow, he will be followed by the Russians because that was what they will do anyway because they don't take, they just follow everyone to see what they're doing. So it's obvious to him that this guy is an intelligence officer from the, from the internal service, external service, we're not sure about this, but let's say internal service. But he does know that probably the wife will not be suspicious or not be under observation. So correctly, he said, okay, let's drop it off at his wife because he knew he was not under surveillance. Also, the reverse being that if there was a French mole or someone in the French side right. of things in Moscow working for the Russians, right. they might be, oh, why is Ferrand always meeting this Russian guy? Continue. Eventually, Vetrov is given a Minox mini camera, which he uses to great effect. And later even, the CIA, through the DST, would provide an even smaller micro camera for Vetrov to use. Hence, no longer needing to copy files. Yes, it was crazy. Yes, uh, crazy, you know, smuggling yeah. in, out, all that means you stuff. have to give it back. You have to have two meetings to, for the same thing. And cameras are much more efficient. Um, yes. <laughs> have their own problems, they don't have a course, but... If they don't have a memory, it's good. Additionally... Ludmilla, it is assumed, also proved key in attaining information. Vetrov took her documents, with or without her permission, little unclear, and copied them, eventually even gaining access to her safe, which had other documents, finding a way to get a copy of her key secretly. And when the office was empty, he had access to all this. Vetrov essentially decided to pass important state secrets to the West for ideological reasons. He didn't ask for money. He was more of an ideologue. Right. However, eventually he would accept 25,500 rubles, equivalent to about four years of his salary. 
I haven't had this confirmed in all my sources, but he may have accepted some money along the way. And he did ask for whiskey, which was used to help schmooze and get info from colleagues, and of course for himself, and some jewelry for his wife. So there were some gifts being exchanged and things from the West, Western decadence, let's call it. Yes. Not completely out of the ordinary or particularly suspect. There were, however, some questions at the DST if Vetrov was giving false information due to the volume of information. This was, however, quickly ruled out because they didn't believe that the KGB would use someone like Vetrov, a drunk, chaotic agent. It seemed unlikely to them. Which begs the question of a drunk, chaotic agent being one of the most successful uh, operatives. Look at it from a different angle. What information is he giving? He is giving, actually, information related to the West. He's not giving anything about Russia, you could say. He's not giving Russian secrets. Agents he's giving away. Moles. Well, afterwards he did. Yeah. Part or, of the stuff or, he's or connections. Giving. But for the intelligence that he was giving was the technology, I mean, in his mind and in the Russians' mind, why they, he was not seen as a problem at the stage. Because well, they weren't aware of it to begin with. Because he's not giving the information he's giving is what they received from the West. So the context of the information, the West knows. What they don't know is the fact that the Russians were interested in it and have it. That's that's the knowledge that he's giving them. So from the Russian point of view, is he selling state, state secrets? Is he saying giving weaponization? Is he giving authors of sites? Is he giving certain things? Is not giving that kind of information. But the information he's giving is something even more profound. And that is what the Russians are looking for, what they need. But and you the can extent. only and the extent. And and that is even more damaging in the end than actually just giving tidbits of, of names here and there. So let's talk about what he actually did bring. Okay? Yes. Yes. Vetrov passed almost four thousand secret documents. He had also completed a handwritten list of 250 Line-X officers' names, addresses, positions, and where they were stationed under legal covers and embassies around the world. Yes. One report states that information from Vetrov neutralized 422 KGB officers and 54 Western Soviet moles working for the KGB and USSR bloc. I can believe that because he was, he was in a position to know that. Every single day, he got a report of people from around the world, or right. multiple reports. He of, saw everything. He, he was saw like, everything. yes, great place to have an, an agent and keep him there if they were clever enough to understand it. But what do they do? We'll find out. Okay. <laughs> because of this, the West was able to see the exact extent and success of the Russian spy network. On July 19th, 1981, in a private meeting at the Ottawa summit, the French president, François Mitterrand, told American President Ronald Reagan about an agent farewell, and he offered the intelligence. The CIA learning of farewell, of Vetrov, would eventually feed him rotten tech that looked good and that they hoped would end up in use. Ronald Reagan's national security advisor, Richard Allen, said, I hoped it would be deployed and put into equipment and systems and things of that nature and be scheduled to implode at a given time. Now, this bad tech actually did end up in a control system of a Soviet natural gas pipeline and caused one of the greatest successes of Operation Farewell because in June 1982, the pipeline imploded. Richard Allen said, It not only imploded, but it exploded with the force of some five kilotons. 
This most likely was the Trans-Siberian Pipeline disaster in 1982. Throughout all of this process, the CAA not once knew Vetrov by name, only as farewell. Well, that's why you have a nickname, as we discussed in other different uh, episodes, because you don't want it to leak and you don't want it to be compromised. I really like this um, false information feeding aspect. It's It shows like another aspect of the intelligence. It's not just about getting the right information, but also... Using the information, how to change the reality. Yeah, or feeding false information yes. and false tech. It's, yes. it's very interesting. Now, in spite of all of this success, Vetrov was frustrated. It seems to be a habit of his. The DST was nervous of the risk of the frequent meetings, almost once a week, of transferring information, and they decided to take a short halt. A holiday vacation for Ferrand, the six-foot-five giant. During this vacation, Vetrov drank, and drank, and drank some more. He became more paranoid, feeling alone. Thoughts of how he could be abandoned when there was so much work to be done, so many important things. Remember, every day he got information from around the world of all this success and theft. In the last meeting between Ferrand and Vetrov, after Ferrand returned, he says that Vetrov was drunk and unintelligible, muttering, It's all over. It's all over. And in fact, it was soon to be. In 1982, Vetrov's espionage work ended, drinking in his car with his mistress, as we addressed in the opening. But was this really what happened? There are other versions of this story. In one version... Ludmila started to suspect Vetrov, and Vetrov took her home, and that evening they argued in the car while drinking champagne. Eh, that part's always the same. Stabbing her as a passerby came to investigate the noise, only then to be stabbed by Vetrov. Some say the passerby was not a KGB officer at all, but a homeless man. Other stories go on to say that Ludmila was a sex groupie at the KGB, and KGB officers were jealous, one of whom approaching the car at a certain point. Another story goes that Vetrov went home after the stabbing, confessed everything to his wife Svetlana, then was arrested later in the evening after Ludmila told the police who stabbed her. End result, were all the same. Vetrov was arrested. Any thoughts on this particular aspect? Well, if you go back one step, please, and discuss the running of the agent, because that's the interesting, yeah. Because that was the last, the last scene you said is when the case officer met him after being away for a long time. I think he took two breaks. He took a break and then again a Christmas break. He said to him, I'll be away for another two months. When you're running an agent whose motivation is not so much money but ideological reasons and you don't realize that what the fuel that he needs is the human touch, your human guidance to feel important, to feel he's doing something good. And actually what you're saying to him, ah, we, we can take a two-month break, we can take a month break. And this guy is getting information every day. He gets very, very frustrated. And I think they read it wrong. From the point of view of handling him as an agent, they could have lasted much longer with him and much, have much more benefit from him for many years if they would have handled him better. And what happened here was he could not understand how come a person like him who's risking his life his handler is, can take two months off and he's saying to himself, the West, they don't realize how important the information is. They're, they're taking it as if it's not important. Like, oh, okay, we can take time off. But every day that goes by, I, he sees the intelligence coming in. He sees the information has been gathered by his colleagues around the world. And he realizes that something has to be done about it. But the West or the people he made contact with are not doing anything. And I think from the point of view of handling an agent, that was a mistake. 
been he shouldn't been allowed to be in a scenario where he is even though he was already a little bit rocky from the point of view of the drinking but to be in a scenario where he is not seen for so long because you take a holiday take a holiday have someone else replace you that's okay you take a week off two weeks off don't go away for two months and not do it twice they said they were worried about how long they're seeing him too often there's too much information okay too much information is never bad <laughs> It's how you handle it and how you're able to do it. I can understand. Okay, so find different methods. But that's not the issue. The issue is this guy was not running for money. This guy was not doing it for greed. He wasn't blackmailed. He came to you. He came to you and made a decision. And then you're not showing you're serious. That's the worst thing. The worst thing you can do to your agent is showing that you don't respect him or you don't understand him. And in this case, I'm not blaming the French, but again, because... That's not their job. Their job is not to run agents outside of France. That's why there's intelligent organizations and external intelligence organizations because there's a different way of thinking. It's a different method of doing things. And it's a different set of mind of how you run an agent. He was not run by an external service. He was run like he's running someone in, in France. And that's okay. But it wasn't okay until for this guy. Wasn't. Until it wasn't. Then if you look at the outcome, when he was arrested, and as you said in the opening remarks, he, he was arrested for murder or for attempted murder. Murder. Never, he murdered the guy. He murdered the guy. It was never thought at this stage that there's something more behind it. It took right. him making a couple of mistakes again. For the Russians to understand, oh my God, what's going on? Well, not just that, but the French also making a mistake after he was uh, captured that led to his suspicions of him as well. Like what? We'll get to it. So please let us continue. I want to touch on one particular point that you mentioned, though, knowing with whom you're dealing. Now, you mentioned to me a little technique, let's call it, that you've used when dealing with people. And that's when you're dealing with someone who maybe doesn't have as much, comes from more humble means. When you meet them, you might take them out to a very fancy restaurant. Because for them, that's very special and unique and new. Whereas when you're meeting someone who comes from the upper echelons, let's call it, you'll find a place that's more local, more homey, more salt of the earth kind of thing. And for them, that'll be more special and unique because you're leaving an impression. The poor person, let's call them, will be more impressed and more thankful to have this high-class experience. And the more high-class person, obviously depending on who, you can't take a president to some place, but will be more thankful and appreciative of this unique cultural experience, knowing with whom you're dealing with, right? I have to agree. <laughs> I'm sure you do. It's your technique after all. Well, a technique. It's just observation of human behavior. Everything is personal. Always. Again, you have to remember the times and the way things, the technology was working. So we, we can't always judge what we have today and today's technology than what we had then. But still, there's some fundamentals that shouldn't have been dealt with the way they were. Now, Vetrov was actually scheduled to meet Ferran the day after the stabbing incident. Naturally, this didn't occur. After Vetrov's arrest, he was tried for murder and received 12 years. He was not tried for being a traitor, only for murder, which to me seems to indicate that Ludmilla didn't necessarily have suspicions no. or anything like that. No, it was all in his mind. Yeah. No one knew anything. In 1983 the DST found out about the arrest from CAA contacts and pulled their own people out of Moscow. This is 
a year later, within yes. a year. They didn't even know what happened to him. I mean, you think that Ferran doesn't meet you the next day. It's Well, you don't know what happened, but it just shows you what kind of communications or arrangements were made. And they didn't know why he was arrested. No, they did not. But after finding out, on April 5th, 1983, President Mitterrand allows the DST to expel 47 KGB agents that were uncovered through the farewell dossier, including Pierre Bourdieu, who Vetrov had recruited in 1973. He was another Thompson CSF engineer, and he was sentenced to five years imprisonment in June of 1987. This was considered a faux pas in the espionage community, a violation of protocol to burn your own recruit. But that's exactly what Vetrov did. Any comment on that? You're sending a message to the other side, and uh, then the other side will start thinking, well, how do, how do, where's this leak coming from? How come this happened? At this stage, the French and the Americans did not know why he was sentenced, or they knew why he was sentenced to jail, but they didn't know that the Russians were not aware of his espionage. Therefore, they should have, they had the choice or to say, okay, the guy's no use to us anymore, as he is. He's not going to go back to his job. We're not going to get the information from him anymore. Now let's, get, let's do the best we can from the information we got and use it. Now that's the right thing to do, you would say. Okay, the guy is, is finished. I mean, he's not, going to work. he's not going to come out of prison in 12 years and get his old job back. He maybe has information, as obviously he does, but you couldn't make contact to him. So you take advantage of what you have. The question is, why did they wait so long for certain things to happen? If they had the list of people, and they had, had the list of names they had, you play the long game. This is where you play the long game. Then if you know these people work for the other side, play them. You feed them the wrong information, or, as the or CIA do, or, did. Or do other things. Yeah, and then, and then decide what to do. I mean, here's but, but the big game was played by Ronald Reagan in the end, because it was the first time where the West was able to look at the Russians in the eye and know when they're bluffing. For sure. And that was the big prize of Vetrov because that allowed Reagan to say, full steam ahead, the Russians are bluffing. They, can't, they don't have the capability to do one, two, three, four, five. They may say they have it, they can't. In the past, his predecessors, they were not sure. Therefore, they couldn't take the risk. Yeah. Reagan was lucky. I mean, you have to be, as you said, you have to be lucky in not only in this, but in most positions, in most professions. He got lucky that in his term as president, he had the information to show him what the Russians are able or not able to do. Yes, because of the spy of the century. I want to state another difference between CIA and, and the DST here is that the CIA, once they found out about Farewell, they immediately put into plans of like sending false information and try to sabotage DST during the whole time, knowing these guys, they're not, there's no stories of them trying to... Not that feed, we know of. Not that we know of, but it just shows a little bit of a difference of approach as well. Yes. In addition to those people expelled in France, Vetrov's 400 names and information that he passed... Along with the subsequent, along with the subsequent explosion that we talked about, had crippled the Soviet information program. Notably, a few people that he exposed were the spy Dieter Gerhard, a senior officer in the South African Navy who had spied for the Soviets for over twenty years. Also, there was information about a Polish coup found to be by Jaruzenski, which succeeded. And there was also an alleged link between the Soviet Union and the assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II which we might do in a later episode. We'll, we'll find out. When Vetrov heard of the French expulsions, 
he was overheard saying, fools, they've dropped me in it. Yes. He was compromised. Yes. Because now the Russians are going to find out how come they have a leak. Where did the leak come from? How did they find out this information? You don't act on information sometimes because when you do, compromises the source. Vetrov was not making life easy for himself in prison. In fact, he was arguing about how the Western world was superior to the Soviet. So convincingly that it aroused suspicion of another former KGB inmate. Vetrov's letters to his wife Svetlana also were regularly opened by the KGB, obviously, and Vetrov carelessly wrote that he was involved in something big before going to jail. He tried to write a letter to the French, which the KGB obviously got their hands on, and realized that he had connections there. Vetrov's list of Linex agents in his handwriting had also been shared with partner nations, the DST of course sharing that information eventually, which resulted in the expulsions, and one of those nations apparently had a mole because this list was passed on to the KGB, who then immediately knew that there was a mole and interrogated Vetrov, eventually Vetrov confessing to have betrayed the Soviet Union. Yes. Now the KGB wanted revenge, and so they came up with a little scheme of their own. They wrote a letter to Prevost to come to Moscow as if it was in Svetlana's handwriting, writing... I've been waiting for a long time for the chance to write and tell you that Vetrov has suffered great misfortune. I've been to see him in prison, Jack. I need to see you. I have so much to tell you. Now, the DST stopped Prevost from going long before he received the letter. The KGB even going so far as preparing a fake passport for a Vetrov double if Prevost came, hoping to catch Prevost red-handed. They did not succeed. The KGB even sent Svetlana to prison to see Vetrov, a meal with alcohol, hoping that he'd write a note for Prevost, which he did, naming new moles, showing that he was still useful. Svetlana handed the notes over dutifully, cooperating. Of course, she had to think of herself and her son at this moment. Vetrov would go on to write a denunciation of the Soviet system called the Confession of a Traitor while in prison. And he was sentenced to death. On January 23rd, 1985, he was executed with a single shot to the back of his head. News reached France in March of 1985, that same year. Interestingly, by 1985, the French president Mitterrand came to suspect that Vetrov was actually a CIA plant to test him to see if material would be handed over to the Americans. He even fired the chief of the French service, Bonnet, on a mistaken belief of this. The details of all this became declassified in 1996. To this day, Vetrov is still considered a villain in Russia. And that's it. That's the whole story. Of course, we got lots still to discuss. Anything you'd like to comment so far? If you look actually of how long he actually worked, it's maybe a year, even less. One year. One year. One year. And the contact started in 1970, you would say, with the accident. The accident, accident was in 1970. Yeah. And the actual, the first time anyone saw something out of the sky was 1980. 81. 81. And it was started off by him making the initial contact. So uh, for me, it rules out any intent or any planning by the French to any do something. Any long-term planning. Exactly. Okay, you don't play the long game that way and wait for the guy to come back to you. That was a mistake. Working for one year, when you have an asset in this place, bringing you this kind of information, shouldn't have lasted for a year. Should have lasted much longer. Especially when we found out that the Russians had no idea what it's all about. Well, to be fair, he compromised it at all by stabbing the guy in Svetlana. Yes, uh, in he stabbed Lumilla, it. But yes, but the, if you look at it, there was no. he was under the suspicion that he was compromised. Right. And he sure. wasn't. 
But if he had someone to tell him or support, uh, him. support him, comfort him, guide him, he wouldn't have come to that. Maybe. Of course, maybe. But it was, oh, it's again a matter of, in my opinion, okay, it's a personality, but as well, maybe the handling could have been done better. But again, the circumstances were different than they are today. Maybe the lines are different from the point of view of who does what in different countries. The rivalry between external and uh, internal organizations has always been a problem in most countries. There's always the one agency wants to see, show that they can do it when they actually shouldn't, and others don't want to share information when they should. A lot of things happen here. But on the bottom line, in the end, the information that was passed was significant enough and in enough quantity to make the West understand where the Russians are standing. And that's the, that's the brilliance of the guy, that he had so much information. As you've said, one year, and he provided all of this information, the farewell dossier, as it's called, which was crippled in one year. I mean, this is such an asset that you would think you would do everything in your power to keep it in place and, and keep it secure. And the question is, at what stage did they share it? I mean, when you get the first dossier, okay, 100 pictures, 50 pictures, 50 documents. You're talking about unbelievable amount of documents and pictures. 4,000 secret documents. Yes, you know, just to, you know, it can take a year just to decide what to do with them. The question is, at what stage, we don't know that. At what stage did they share it with their allies? And I feel that they wasn't shared early enough. Especially the list of moles. That would have been interesting. If you get a list of moles or agents that your agent is telling you about in different countries, the first thing you would do is go and tell them. Of course, find a way to, to make it in a way that you don't compromise your source, mm -hmm. but you do something about it. It's not clear how long that took. I think one of the revealing factors here is, you know, when Mitterrand then suspected that the CIA planted him and all this kind of stuff, it just shows you this lack of cooperation or transparency and this mistrust that exists everywhere. And you're talking between agencies, you know, the D the DST and the, the, the French intelligence service, yeah. but it's everywhere. You know, they, they mistrust them. They mistrust them. I mean, in the game of spies, who can you really trust? As I said, two people share a secret. There's one too many. Secret between two people because only safe when one of them is dead. Well, I don't use those words. Well, we've used them in the past. Okay. Julius Caesar. How many senators was in that plot? Way too many. <laughs> exactly. Um, who do you trust? Trust is the most valuable commodity. We've, we've hammered this idea in season one as well, but trust. Well, he knew, as I, we said earlier, that the external service had moles in, so he was not happy working with them. He did know that probably the Russians did not penetrate enough the internal service and he felt more comfortable with them. And that should be comforting for the internal service. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, he wasn't handled in the most professional way that he could have. So there's a price to pay. Why do you think he, he went with the French rather than a different intelligence agency? The Canadians made an approach potentially as well. Because he, his first initiation being abroad was with the French. He was fascinated with the French culture, the French language, uh, we would like to say the French champagne, but uh, he felt more comfortable. The Canadians, he didn't. It was, it was a bit too far away. It didn't have enough time really to cultivate it. And he made a friend. Now, 
personal. He was probably very successful in Paris, and that built his, his reputation. Probably he did a good job there. He so, was definitely uh, a gregarious individual, easy to make friends. One could very easily argue that he had a pretty high self-esteem of himself and considered himself very talented and all this stuff. He had an opinion about things, and then he, he voiced them. And in the end, he, it, it was too much for him. And he was, but in the end, why, why did he betray his country? Because he felt he was underestimated. He was a, coming from a poor background, and he was, more, he was better than others. He didn't get the pro- promotions he wanted. That's always a motive. You don't get a promotion, you get frustrated, you get others promoted, or younger than you, and less maybe talented. less talented. And then you start blaming everybody else except yourself. And then, uh, then you say, okay, I go against the system. And then you decide to make the, the, the move. And the move that he decided to do at one point was 10 years later to do the move and write the letter and, and send it off uh, again, making a decision to send it through a relative who you don't, he probably could trust, but if he couldn't trust him, he would have been betrayed at that stage. I think one of the key things here as well is we talked earlier why didn't they try to do something earlier with Vetrov? I think it wouldn't have worked earlier with Vetrov. I think he needed that long gestation period to grow his resentments until the ideology turned in him to then betray. It wasn't like other people that maybe they were caught red-handed and now you have a card over them or want money and so you have that card over them. He had to grow into the frustration and the belief that the Soviet Union was failing in order for him to be ready to betray it. Well, the reason he succeeded was the fact that no one made contact with him after all the years that he was in Paris. Therefore, he was not under suspicion. He didn't do anything to make them feel there's a problem with him. Mm-hmm. That was the success with him. You could say that was one of the reasons he was went under the radar. But then look at all these missed years. He would have been working for them all these years. He could have been... If, you know, if he would if, have accepted it. Well, it was there always. But yeah, it would have been run differently. Who knows? A lot of ifs. A lot of ifs, sure. I mean, his disillusionment and personal grudge goes a long way as well. Everything's personal. We keep on hammering this point as well. It's personal that he felt resentment against his bosses and superiors. It was personal that he had a friend, Prévost, who he reached out to in the beginning... It's personal when he felt that Ferrand had abandoned him. All these things, personal. His wife and his girlfriend, everybody betrays him. Then you go into a spin. Yeah. But he did a great service to the West. In the end, you need people like that. Absolutely. And in the end, also, you do see that he was skilled. He had skill. I mean, obviously, he trained in espionage as well. And he knew that to meet Ferrand's wife in a grocery store and hand the documents while she's shopping into the bag and you know, meeting at the hotel with Prévost and then going to the car. You know, he knew... But how did he get the good documents back? Same thing, I guess. Well, I don't know. Well, later it was it the camera, right? I know, yeah. So there's, we don't know everything, that's okay. Would you it's hire a good story. him? Would I hire him? I would love to run a person like that, but not under these circumstances. And not the way he was run? No. If you had a person like... A guy, you, like, a guy like that... Let's go back and look at it for a moment. A guy like that, sitting in the position he's sitting in, seeing all the information that comes in, has the knowledge of all the assets and where they're from. He knows the code names. He knows who's behind everything. He sees all the information that comes in. This is like sitting on a computer and getting everything you want. 
And that's why it was so frustrating for him when he sees all this information and he knows every piece of paper he sees goes against the West. And he wants the West to know about it. And what happens? The guy takes a two-month break or Christmas. He says, you can't take a Christmas break. I think it was one of the things. Is, How can you take a Christmas break when all this thing is happening? Our guys are still working around the, around the world, getting this information, trying to destroy you, and you're taking a two-month break? What's going on here? That was very frustrating. So you think the French were wrong to do a cooling-off period? Yes. Or they were okay to do a cooling-off period, but have, should have handled differently? You have to understand the motivation of your agent to understand how to run him. You can't... But what about the risk of the KGB finding out because there's all these meetings so frequent, even though it seems like there was never any suspicion? Build a different... Well, again, you're looking at today's technology and yesterday's world. On the other hand, yesterday's world was easier to do things because you're not not always easier to find you. They should have found a different system. In the end, he, he, he collapsed. He collapsed because uh, his personality and because he was a loose cannon. If you have people that you work with, I'm sure you've had people that you've worked with as well, that uh, drink. Drinking is a, a recurring theme for him and a lot of other espionage stories. What, what's your relationship? Not, I mean, you personally as well, but I know your personal relationship with uh, alcohol. You don't really touch it very much at all. But what, what would you say about alcohol and espionage? They go together. But not always for the good reasons. I mean, as, it's, as it's a tool. You use it to get people loose, no. loose, limps, loose lips sink ships, of course, as was said in World War II. But what if you know that you're working with people who have a tendency to drink? Is there anything you do to try to curb this when you're running people or anything like that? What can you do? It's all individuals. It's, it's, I don't want to give a recipe for a, a general recipe because it doesn't, it's not real. Every person is in a different case. And you have to deal with it in a different thing. Some people drink for comfort. Some people drink because they need it. Some people drink for sorrow. Some people drink certain drinks. It's not the Some same. Some people drink in the hotel bar when they shouldn't be. Among other things. Some people drink in cars with their girlfriends and then they shoot them or they <laughs> stab, stab them. them. Not the right thing to do. No. Uh, but we're, we're drifting here. We're drifting here. All right. We will end on a quote from Vetrov in his Confessions of a Traitor. It wasn't treason. I'm a Russian. I love my country. I fought a harmful system that holds the Soviet Union in its grip. My only regret is that I was not able to cause more damage to the Soviet Union and render more service to France. This was Spies and Lies. Thanks for listening. And remember... Drinking in a bar has its advantages, but uh, be careful not to drive afterwards. You never know where it will end you up. You never know where you'll end up in it. with it. No, no, never mind. Drinking, drinking in, in a bar, bar has its advantages, advantages, but drinking in a car won't a, get you far. Won't get you far. All right. that for a rhyme? That's very nice of you. Spies and Lies is a Grumpy Golem production with original scoring and mastering by Julien Dussault. If you enjoyed listening, don't forget to share with your friends and leave a comment or review wherever you listen from. If you have any questions or subjects you'd like for my father and I to cover, drop us a message and we'll do our best to get back to you. Until next time.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.